Hey everybody, it's Neil Blackman, host of Florida Basketball Hour. Just wanted to thank you all for joining me. It's been a, a really exciting first year of um, our podcast, and and we're looking forward to another exciting season of Gators basketball. I wanted to say thank you to all of you who have uh, left ratings or given us a heart or sent us some feedback, whether it's Twitter or whether it's on uh, the iTunes reviews, um, you know, any of the mediums, email. Uh, we really appreciate uh, that feedback. You're the reason that we're doing this show. We want to make the show as good as we can for y'all. So thank you for that. Please continue uh, to to leave feedback. If you haven't given us a rating, hop over to Apple and do so. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Florida BB Hour. So we're very uh, grateful to you for listening. And we hope you enjoy this week's show, which will have a, uh, a pretty good breakdown of the closed-door scrimmage against USF. And we'll also... Um, you know, dive in to, to what Florida might do offensively a little differently this season. Uh, it should really excite people who, who you know, love the Gators but had some, some issues with what Mike White himself called a, a tedious uh, offense last season. And, and so hopefully uh, that changes. And anyway, um, just enjoy the show. And, you know, we're, we're one week away from, from game week. And in between – you know, maybe the biggest Florida-Georgia game in a decade. So enjoy the show and go Gators. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I'm with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. We are putting the technical issues of earlier in the week behind us. We're going to try to recreate to the best extent possible what we uh what we had created for you guys earlier this week couple issue a uh, couple things to talk about today um i think probably the best place to start is we got a, a closed door scrimmage and at least a little that we can offer uh people about it right eric yeah closed door scrimmage uh you know you and me had our closed door podcast the other day apparently that <laughs> obviously didn't work it was a it was a pretty good episode it was pretty magical there was a good storytelling um there's even some eric musselman compliments i mean i don't know if we'll ever see it again it was but, uh, but we'll, we'll try here no this will be great but uh the closed door scrimmage is uh is really cool i mean uh, obviously i was not able to watch it you were not able to watch it but just to know that they uh, that the Gators as a team are are in their orange and blue playing uh, basketball games against other schools is, is really cool. And um, Chris Harry did an awesome job writing about it, obviously, and, and gave us all a really good reaction to it, uh, and it, which was really good because there's uh, obviously some good takeaways from the game. Yeah, no, I thought that was uh, that was pretty pretty cool, and and so I, I'll start with with what I thought was the um, the biggest story for me. Out of out of the scrimmage, which was the twelve points, five and nine shooting from Trey Mann. Uh, I know you just wrote an article at Gator Country about maybe what Florida can expect out of Trey Mann. Um, at least I think you did. If you didn't, then then I did. <laughs> okay, <You're good>. uh, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, are the days blending together? And I just made that up. Um, so yeah, twelve points, five and nine shooting. Really, I think the first time Florida's got a guy who's instant offense off the bench since Canyonberry. Totally. Uh, I mean, while talking about what I uh, came up with, I, I think his point total that was projected was 11.7 points per game. So, hey, right alongside the uh, the 12 he scored uh, the other day. Uh, but just like you mentioned, Florida has lacked a difference maker off the bench, at, at least in terms of offensive punch. I should I should 
qualify that. Uh, they've lacked someone who can change the game from an offensive standpoint off of the bench. And Trey Mann is just so perfectly suited to that role, I think. Uh, like, I mean, there's a chance he, he gets in there and starts just because uh, that talent level is so high. But I, I do think his skill set is, is perfect uh, to come in uh, off the bench with this, uh, the way that this roster is constructed and, and come in and, and get a ball screen and go to work or uh, simply isolate against whoever's guarding him or get a, get a switch onto a big and attack him. Uh, there's just so many things he can do uh, kind of bottled instant offense uh, microwave. He's the exact, you know, you even look at the guys in the NBA that, that play a similar role. They're similar size to Trey man. They're guys like, Trey Mann that can either play off the ball or be his kind of scoring point guard. Uh, just, uh, uh, just to hear that he got 12 points uh, playing that kind of role, uh, it's really exciting because, yeah, like you said, Neil, uh, that, that hasn't been the case recently in Florida basketball. Yeah, and so, you know, and, and that was, yeah, obviously pretty important given what we do know from Chris Harry that Florida kind of started the game slow, um, but looks like Florida defended pretty well. After kind of the first 10 minutes of the game, the Gators end up forcing 21 turnovers and then they kind of break open uh, a 24-24 tie late in the first half thanks to uh, Kerry Blackshear, but in a surprising way. Yeah, to see him shoot, you know, six of seven from the three-point line is really, really good, um, obviously. Yeah, great uh, great analysis there, Eric. But um, yeah. I, I, I think that I was I, – something I've talked about is uh, I would say I wasn't totally sold that Kerry Blackshear was uh, a super good three-point shooter coming from Virginia Tech. Uh, he was a 33% shooter, but more than that, he didn't have a lot of attempts when he was with the Hokies. I, I think he had, you know, just under two a game. So that's uh, that's not a lot of attempts, and I mean – uh, they had some shooters on that team, but I, I would still think, you know, someone who is a better, more confident shooter is probably putting up more attempts than less than two a game. So, uh, so I was kind of in the camp where I'm, I, I knew that he was a good shooter. He was great. Uh, there's obviously a lot of word from camp that I mean, uh, from practices that they have shooting competitions and uh, Kerry Blackshear just keeps winning them, even though Florida's got uh, Noah Locke and Trey Mann and even Andrew Nemphart. Uh, on the roster so uh, it's starting to look like his shooting is obviously for real um, and uh, just before Neil you get back to talking about Blackshear I do want to point out to people uh, just so to kind of help frame this conversation about the scrimmage uh, that USF is a really really good basketball team uh, they're a team that I think is going to be in the hunt for an NCAA tournament bid um, bring back a lot of guys from a team that was good last year uh, they also force a lot of turnovers play really good defense and they play really big and rebound the ball really well. Like they, they play, um, you know, a seven footer next to Alexis Yetna, who's a monster at the power forward spot. He's like six, nine. So uh, they've got, you know, really good size, really good physicality. They force a lot of turnovers. So uh, this wasn't, um, you know, this wasn't a terrible team that Florida just went in and handled. It was a really good team. So to hear that it started slow, but Florida um, kind of overwhelmed them in the end. I mean, that's a good win. Uh, but yeah, you uh, talking about Blackshear. What, what were kind of your thoughts about his game? Well, you know, I mean, I think that the one thing that that if Blackshear is going to shoot threes at, at a clip that, like, let's assume it's even a five percent increase, Eric, from the thirty-three to to around thirty-eight at higher volume, um, that affects the way that that teams have to defend. I think almost immediately, um, and it makes an interior passer who's very good, like Kerry Blackshear. Uh, even more, even more dangerous, especially now that getting back to Trey Mann 
uh, mentioning Scotty Lewis, who we haven't mentioned. Like Florida has kind of difference makers in the way that they can space the floor uh, offensively um, this season as well, don't they? Yeah, they do. Just to, to know that there's going to be guys like, obviously, we know Noah Locke. We know uh, Keontae Johnson was a really good catch-and-shoot player. Uh, something I wrote about was that Andrew Nemhart was an elite catch-and-shoot player. Uh, even though his percentage of three-pointers doesn't look great, it's because uh, he wasn't good off the dribble. But elite from catch-and-shoot. So uh, there's going to be a lot of shooters. And uh, the more I think about it, uh, like Florida ran uh, within their kind of Princeton offense at the, uh, the end of last year. Or I shouldn't say the end. Most of the second half of last season. Uh, there was a lot of plays where uh, Kavarius Hayes would be kind of standing where your point guard normally would, straight on the straight facing the hoop, but beyond the three-point line. Uh, he'd pass the ball to the wing, and then a guard would come and set a down screen that would get Kavarius Hayes going towards the rim um, for kind of a little bit of an easier post-up look or a layup, uh, ideally. And I think about that they ran that play a lot. And I just think about, like, if you if you do the same thing and you've got Kerry Blackshear starting behind the three-point line, and someone comes to set a down screen for him, and defenses have to decide whether they want to uh, cheat on the down screen uh, because they don't want they don't want Kerry Blackshear to get a post up. Uh, if they do that, I mean, he can just sit behind the three point line and, and drill a three pointer. Or if they are saying, "Hey, we really don't want him to pop out and get a three, they overplay. Uh, then you dump it down. Then Kerry Blackshear can take the down screen, get going towards the hoop, catch the ball, and you know have a really easy post up. Uh, there's just so many ways to use them. Uh, really infinite when you've got a guy that size that can uh, score down low and shoot the ball. But uh, yeah, it's uh, very encouraging thinking about the offense Florida can run this year. Yeah, and, and one other point I'd make, and, and it kind of gets into a, a, a listener question that we had that, that we wanted to address in this show is that so Florida's got a couple guys who, in, in addition to Trey Mann, who are, are pretty effective or at least profile as pretty effective drivers. I, Keontae Johnson profiles that way. Uh, Scotty Lewis certainly might not be uh, the most in control in that respect this season, but I think certainly we'll have some moments where that's very effective. And, and that's another benefit of having, you know, the, that in the modern game, if you have a stretch four, if you have a big that can shoot, you draw and help defenders, you open up lanes. So, you know, just gives Florida just another wrinkle and element and ways to attack and stress defenses, which Florida didn't have last year because they really didn't have guys in their motion offense who could win one-on-one battles that often. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, it really was very set reliant. Yeah, it was having those, uh, those guys kind of change the defense. I mean, if, if nothing else, uh, you've got a ball screen from Kerry Blackshear that's going to make defenses react. That was something for Florida last year as if uh, if, if play kind of dissolved and they needed a late clock kind of option and Kavarius Hayes is setting a screen for, um, for Andrew Nemhart, uh, you know, teams aren't super concerned about the role. They're not, absolutely not concerned about Kavarius Hayes popping out for a three-point look. Uh, you've got something like that. So, uh, hey, if, and if uh, Kerry Blackshear is playing a little bit in the high post in the free throw line area where at Virginia Tech, he played a, a ton in that area. Uh, teams are probably going to suck in. That opens up the baselines for guys like uh, Keontae Johnson and Scotty Lewis to attack. Uh, yeah, I mean, you get one of the best offensive players. I would say the best offensive player his position in, in college basketball. And yeah, your offense is going to improve drastically. And I just, I really can't wait to see what Mike White and his staff kind of uh, dial up with some more weapons than, uh, than last year. Yeah, and I don't think Eric and I are like, well, you know, we really don't want to sound repetitive on the, um, hey, they added Kerry Blackshear, so so the offense will be better. Like, that's an obvious 
<laughs> a pretty obvious take. I think what we're trying to do is just profile the different ways from a basketball standpoint that that occurs. And, and, and so uh, one guy I really do think is going to benefit from Kerry Blackshear that we haven't talked a lot about on the pod in the last month plus is Keontae Johnson. Keontae finished the season with three double-doubles in Florida's final five games. He had four double-doubles in Florida's final eight. Um, Keontae uh, didn't get onto the All-SEC teams. I actually didn't include him on the Florida Basketball Hour ballot. Shame on me, I guess. Uh, second team. Um, but Tanner Lefevre uh, asked what we can expect from Keontae Johnson in year two, what kind of jump he'd make. And I would note that the godfather of SEC basketball coverage, Blake Lavelle, did include Keontae Johnson on his All-SEC ballot. Yeah, I love that Blake did that. Just uh, I- I'm like you. If I was voting, I-, I probably wouldn't have put him on my second team, but that certainly is not to say that he couldn't get there. I, I mean, he could easily be uh, Florida's – you know, third most important player, second most important player. I don't, yeah, I really think the sky's the limit for him. Uh, something that I, I really think that, especially you kind of saw the way that um, some media members, like uh, com- color commentators and and whatnot, talked about Keontae Johnson. Um, I honestly think they just see how just like muscular and powerful he is, and kind of like sell short his actual basketball abilities. Uh, just because, yeah, he's he's massive, he's muscular, he can really jump and is extremely athletic. But I, I just really think he is so, so sound fundamentally. And you look at players like that, and you don't normally think like, oh, their their footwork must be excellent. You just think like, oh, they're just going to go overpower someone. And, you know, Keontae Johnson can overpower people. But he really is a really fundamentally sound basketball player, and that's why I love him. Uh, the way that he shoots the basketball, it, it doesn't look as pretty as as uh, it should, I, I suppose. And what I mean by that is uh, he's just so muscular. It looks a little bit awkward and robotic when he when he goes up. But if you actually look at uh, what like at his actual mechanics, they're they're perfectly sound. The way he uh, gets his elbow up and in front, uh, the way his wrist gets cocked back, kind of early in the motion, his release point, his jump shot is really really nice. Uh, so I, I really think he can even make more strides. He was a good percentage three-point shooter last year, but uh, if it went up even more, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And uh, the way he attacks closeouts, I think, is just something that's so, so vital to modern basketball. And it's uh, when people talk about you know offensive players and, and talk about getting into the paint, it's usually, hey, how does this guy use ball screens? Or can he make something happen one-on-one? Uh, but with Keontae Johnson, he's just so good at attacking the weak foot of the guy that's closing out on him. Uh, and just gets into the paint. He often can jump stop with with two feet. He uses extra pivots better than anyone on the team. Uh, he's which will make you know all the old school basketball fans yeah. really happy the way he uses pivots. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of my love fest for for Keontae Johnson is the fact that I, I really think he's he's one of the most sound basketball players I've seen. And for him to do that as a freshman uh, for someone who could very easily just rely on his athleticism, uh, that's not the case. So. Um, I guess the question was, how could he uh, take another step? Uh, I, I really, you know, to see just like how intelligent, how sound of a basketball player he is, uh, I think he's just going to continue to knock down shots. I think he's going to be able to just like destroy teams by attacking closeouts. Uh, but I think it's just uh, the next step for him will be, hey, could he, with the ball in his hands, uh, could he beat um, slower four men off the dribble? Because we know Keontae Johnson's going to play power forward. Uh, I think that would be the next evolution for his game, just some, some work off the dribble. But uh, even as he was last year, just a very effective basketball player. 
Yeah, and so I would I would just add the one thing I would add to that is is I'd like to see him ball fake a little more, and I, I I'd like to see him do what we saw him do a little bit in the Nevada game in the NCAA tournament and and in the SEC tournament where you know once he hits those three pointers, Eric, people start respecting that shot a little more, and I think he can get easier baskets for himself or get to the foul line where he's a pretty good free throw shooter. As I recall, he, you know, he had a, he had some moments at the SC tournament where he couldn't hit anything, but otherwise was pretty decent um, for a freshman. So, you know, I, I do think he can get to the line more. Um, I think he can, I think he can use the thread of his three point shot to create more offense for himself. And so um, I think he can kind of elevate his game in that way. Yeah. And, and this is something you know, I'd say I'd like to see a match to his game, but I'm not sure he'll have the opportunity. And I'm not saying Florida's staff should even give him this opportunity, I guess. But uh, I mean, if he was, if he were to play at the three, I, I would love to see him. Um, like, yeah, I'm not going to compare Keontae Johnson to LeBron James, but you see LeBron James in the NBA when he has smaller guards on him or smaller wings, I should say, because LeBron's bigger than everyone. Uh, just the way he's able to just like straight line drive by shielding the ball. And yeah. then just like using his wide shoulders at the rim to lay, like Keontae Johnson could do that against a lot of wings where he could attack in a straight line. The defender could be in good defensive position, um, be running with Keontae Johnson and Keontae Johnson could just get into the paint and with his wide shoulders, with his strength, uh, take a bump, get the space and, and finish. And that would obviously require him playing a little bit more three, which I, I'm not totally sure would be the best option, but it is something he could like add to his game. Um, but once again, uh, yeah, I'm not sure he, he, you know, at the, at this level with this, uh, with this team, if that's something we'll have to, he'll be able to do, but, um, we've seen him obviously play the undersized role, um, playing as a smaller power forward. Um, but it'd be interesting to see when, uh, if he gets some, some opportunities at the wing to, to hang on smaller wings and see what he can do against them. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And, and to, to that end, um, he was one of Florida's most effective players in, in late offense, which, when you have his type of body often comes on just trying to make a drive and, and being physical and getting at the basket, he's 57.1% according to hoop math um, in those situations. And that was uh, 22% of his shots. So I wow. think, you know, I, I really think that, that Eric's right. Like that's an actual room where at least what few statistics we have from, it's not a particularly huge sample size because it's only 49 field goal attempts in one season, but I think it does show that there's room for growth there. Another thing I think you'll see bump up at to, to final, to put a bow on the question is um, I think Keontae is a pretty good interior passer. And so I think when you have a more natural post um, and then you have guys who can kind of attack a flash from the wings, like Trey Mann, Scotty, Scotty Lewis, uh, I do think his assist numbers can go up um, if, if, you know, cause he'll just have more opportunities for dump offs. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I'm really glad you brought up his passing. Uh, it really is special. I think he's an excellent passer. And one thing I do really like uh, is the fact that when he drives to the hoop, he's not leaving his feet um, for you know some awkward pass that could be a turnover or he's not forcing up a floater when, when nothing is there. He's someone who comes to a jump stop. And when you come to a jump stop, you're under control and you can. Uh, that's where you can make passes from. And he had some of those last year where uh, he went to drive um wasn't quite there 
Uh, he came to a jump stop, was under control, and then was able to find someone with a nice bounce pass or, uh, or some kind of hook pass to, to kind of keep the offense moving. And uh, that's something that he was really good at. So I'm glad you brought up his passing as well, something that he also does does really well. Putting a bow on the scrimmage, Florida had uh, two freshman bigs that played quite a bit. Omar Payne played 16 minutes um, and played pretty well. Uh, got six rebounds, which I think um, – or sorry, six points, grabbed three rebounds. But I still think, you know, you'd take those numbers from him in 16 minutes. Uh, and then Jason Jatobo, um, you know, drops 30 pounds since arriving on campus, what, three months ago? pretty impressive and um you know got to the foul line at a high rate didn't make the free throws but uh some positive signs there yeah uh the bulls are a team that are going to uh foul a ton they (laughs) fouled about as much as anyone in college basketball last year so especially if they see someone like uh, jatobo that's not feeling it from the free throw line yeah they're gonna come bring the hammer down but uh it's really good to see that he's healthy really good to see that he's playing well and uh, obviously, uh, it's it's looking with a couple injuries that maybe he uh, plays a role a little bit this year. Where it was once thought um, by me too, to be honest, that he would be redshirting. Uh, looks like he might get into the rotation, and um, it's it's kind of interesting because even before uh, before Gak went down, um, I was even thinking about the fact that uh, just kind of how Florida's opportunity this year is so special. Like you don't often have times where uh, your talent is this good, and I look across the college basketball landscape, and I think that. Uh, there's not a lot of great teams at the top, and Florida has a really good shot at a national championship this year. And thinking about things in, in that lens, uh, as it relates to Jason Jatobo, just thinking like, hey, if there, if, if Jason Jatobo playing and not redshirting um, makes you 0.01% better chance at, at winning a national championship, hey, maybe you maybe you don't redshirt him. Just on the off chance he, he comes in and is, is effective in some... Uh, some big game for for a two minute stretch. So I was already kind of warming to like, hey, maybe you should just uh, play Jatobo even if he doesn't play a major role. Um, still use that year of eligibility, and you never know when he might be needed. So I was kind of warming to that. Then of course Gak gets injured, and then we hear that uh, Jatobo's you know lost weight, looking good, and uh, plays well in the scrimmage. So uh, it's going to be something. I, he's another one who I think is going to be a fan favorite for sure, and and just not many teams can match up with that size. So. Uh, to see him play, I really obviously wish I could have seen him at the scrimmage, but uh, someone I'm starting to think that we'll see play uh, play a few minutes this year. Yeah, and I think you brought up a key point about not many teams being able to match up with his size, because I think one of the other things that makes Terry Blackshear like, so unique and difficult to, to deal with in this modern age, and don't get me wrong, I'm not comparing Jason to Tobo to Kerry Blackshear. It just made me want to circle back to this thought. Um, and it's something that you brought up on the Screen the Screener podcast, which I, if anybody's, you know, you guys are college basketball junkies ready for the season, like like me, make sure you check out uh, Eric's episode on uh, Screen the Screener. Uh, he had a lot of really interesting things to say about the national landscape, and you, you know you're going to learn something when Eric's talking. But, <laughs> but there just aren't a lot of teams on Florida's schedule or period that have the type of bigs you need with quick feet to defend a guy like Blackshear. So if you can get kind of an extra wave of bigs, right, where you bring in a Dante Bassett, then you bring in a Jason Detobo, it really wears and stresses the defense. Yeah, I mean, most teams don't have, you know, one six foot 11 250-pound guy capable of banging with Kerry Blackshear. 
very few teams have two if you take Jason Jatobo off the bench and, and have <laughs> I mean, you look at a lot of the backup bigs, even in the SEC, a lot of them are, you know, in the six foot eight, 230 range. Um, that's going to be, a, you know, tough for them to handle Jason Jatobo if, if that's what happens. So uh, having that versatility in the front court's really big. And uh, for Florida to just have the opportunity to maybe just, uh, roll out so many big players and just wear down their opponents. It's, it's, it's pretty exciting from a team that uh, has obviously been undersized the last two seasons. Yeah, no question. No question. So um, anything that we need to add about Dante Bassett has a knee. Apparently it's a bruise. Um, it's Duke Warner, the team trainer says it's not too serious. Uh, could mean that they limit his minutes in November which I think could provide an opportunity to Omar Payne, which is maybe where we stop with the, uh, with the spring, with, with the closed door scrimmage. Can't talk. <laughs> yeah. We haven't talked about Payne yet. And that's someone who's going to be, uh, going to be really interesting just to see what role he ends up playing, whether he competes for, uh, the chance to play some of that backup five action. Uh, but really for me, I, I do think he's going to get some minutes at the backup four spot behind Keontae Johnson. And I think that's probably what what I think is best. Uh, Florida is going to have the opportunity to either play small with maybe Scotty Lewis at the four or play bigger when Keontae Johnson goes to the bench with someone like an Omar Payne at the four. Um, though I guess it also should be, you know, Mike White said that uh, on media day that uh, maybe Terry Blackshear is someone you want to play at the four next to. Yeah. Uh, like a Gak if healthy or, or a Jatobo. So um, there's options there, but um, yeah, Omar Payne just uh, with his ability to move side to side, uh, for his ability to uh, uh, to obviously jump and recover, like I was watching some uh, hunting for some clips of him. I wanted to see what it would be like for him to handle maybe some smaller players, and, and I found somewhere. You know, he's playing against a lot of smaller players, obviously just with his size. Not many high school teams can kind of match up, uh, and it was interesting because I thought he moved his feet really well. And if he ever got beat, he's got such great length and athleticism that he often could recover and get a block or or at least contest a shot that you thought, oh, someone just you know beat Omar Payne off the dribble and then it's like oh no he just you know caught up and contested the shot so uh he's someone that he I, I think could manage at the four defensively um and then uh some something for me that's that's really important is is, is rebounding I know it's important for everyone I, I think I value it even more than most people uh but for for the chance to have an Omar Payne at the four to to really pound the offensive glass get tip outs and get second chance opportunities and and also to keep other teams off the glass I mean uh, if you go to the bench and say it's, uh, you know, you say you still got Andrew Nemhard out there, uh, you've got Trey Mann, uh, you've got Scotty Lewis, and you've got, you know, Omar Payne at the four, uh, and you just say, like, hey, Payne, like, you can sit the dunker spot offensively. Uh, let's look for some alley-oops, and let's look for let's look for you to get on the offensive glass and defensively. Uh, yeah, be active, uh, control the glass, and that can be your role. I mean, he could be very, very effective there, and uh, the team could be really effective with him in that in that role, I think, so. Uh, that, that's kind of the role I kind of envisioned for, for Payne. I see him playing more at the power forward spot. Um, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think I actually think he will He will do that. I think his role will be similar to what the, this staff put together for Kavarius Hayes when he was a freshman. Um, I, and, I, and again, I think, I think it's a pretty good comparison from an athleticism standpoint. Um, Hayes, obviously, not quite as highly touted as Omar Payne, Eric, but you know, as a freshman, Hayes was used on 15% of possessions. Um, and, you know, he put together a def- defensive rebounding percentage of of 12.3, uh, but his offensive rebounding percentage 
was 11.8, which would have been in the top 100 had he played enough possessions already as a freshman. Uh, it kind of gives you an idea of, of what kind of skill set and talent, just his energy level was. And his block rate was 5.5%, which was tied with John Igbunu on that team. And Igbunu just had enough possessions to be in the top 150 in the country. So I think Payne, like, from that standpoint, will be a really, really effective player for Florida defensively. And, you know, when he's in the game, I think that's huge because obviously Florida's going to be giving up some level of skill on the offensive end. Yeah, it'd be really good to get his uh, kind of shot blocking onto the floor at, from the power forward position. Uh, Florida hasn't really had shot blocking floors recently. I mean, Keontae Johnson just being a huge athlete, he uh, he kind of recovered and had some pretty ridiculous blocks last year. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just with someone with like an Omar Payne's like that, it's, it's pretty interesting to see the way that Florida plays, does play defense because they, uh, Mike White seems really pressure on the perimeter, but I mean, if the ball starts to, uh, starts to get into uh, the painted area, they, they really do collapse and they really try to protect the rim at all costs. And uh, oftentimes it's, you know, you think about your five man in that position to protect the rim, uh, but it was oftentimes the four man as well. And uh for, you know, you play undersized that position. That's something that can that can hurt you sometimes defensively. Uh, but you get Omar Payne there. I, I think he could be very effective uh, playing this kind of like, hey, let's uh, sell out to protect the rim at all costs, which we, we see from Florida a lot. And, and uh, then you can also end the possession with a defensive rebound. So uh, yeah. someone who I think is uh, from what I've heard about how he's played in practice has kind of played him into a played himself into a a, a bigger role. And and I'm 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 like as I've kind of mentioned many times I am here for Florida playing bigger and trying to uh, dominate the glass I, I I would really like to see that this year yeah one number I wanted to share with listeners because it kind of it also tees up uh, Eric's uh, recent column at Gator Country about offensive rebounding but just so people are aware Florida was and again it's hard to quantify total rebounding and Eric's going to explain that in a second but Florida was plus 9.2 in the elite eight year with Johnny Boonu on the floor that was their rebounding average. Um, and then, obviously, they found it much tougher sledding to compete on the glass after the Agbunu injury and probably cost them an SEC championship, at least in my opinion. I don't know about Eric's. Um, but certainly may have also cost them a trip to the Final Four late in the South Carolina game in addition to, to cold shooting. So I really think this will be the most competitive Florida team on the glass um, that you've seen under Mike White. Yeah, I think you look at the teams that have gone deep, really good teams gone deep in the tournament. Uh, you're either, you know, hyper, hyper effective offensively or you're really good on the glass. And uh, I, I think Florida is going to, like you said, be really competitive in that in that area. But uh, as you very nicely queued up as well, I mean, I, I wrote up at Gator Country the other day just kind of about the value of offensive rebounding. Uh, one thing I did think was interesting, too, is just uh, I, I feel like when people talk about Mike White as a coach and they talk about, like, the traits of his teams, uh, they don't, you know, you don't really hear about offensive rebounding, but it's something that all his teams have always uh, done fairly well. And uh, even though the team has not been a very good defensive rebounding team, uh, they've always been good offensive rebounding. So it's clear that that is a, a focus for the Gators. And uh, I also just, yeah, went into kind of the numbers of just how, how valuable it is. Uh, how how valuable an offensive rebound is, and uh, I I think I'm just going to spoil it here. But I mean, uh, I'd love for you to go read it and, and see how I got to <laughs> this, this number. But um, uh, it's it, for Florida last year, an offensive rebound is worth about a point uh, a point per possession. So uh, very easy to say. Uh, every time they got an offensive rebound, it was essentially a point. 
Um, defensively, it was about the same, the same as well. So for Florida, who gave up a lot of offensive rebounds, uh, for every offensive rebound they, they gave up, um, you're giving up roughly a point as well in terms of expected shot value. So uh, those shots are uh, one of the reasons why those shots were so valuable for the Gators was uh, the, uh, a putback attempt. Uh, was a really good, efficient shot for the Gators when they got an offensive rebound and were able to put it up right away. Um, obviously, you're usually near the hoop. Your defender usually has his back turned to you. Uh, it's an efficient shot. Uh, as well as uh, you get an offensive rebound, you can often get uh, the you know the kick out three, the inside out three, uh, which is is always like the best three point shot to shoot. I mean, you look at you know players shooting around with their friend. Um, their French sits under the hoop, gets the rebound, kicks it out to you. And, and that's how guys usually just kind of practice their shooting or a manager, I should say, <laughs> is kicking it out. Yeah. And uh, so you see that you see that as, as I you know, have studied a lot of teams in college basketball, those are about as efficient shots as you can get are inside out threes. So uh, getting offensive rebounds are just so valuable. So uh, the Gators making a concentrated effort to get on the glass, I think is really wise. Uh, you also look at the fact that Florida gave up so many offensive rebounds. Uh, that also means they were giving up a lot of really high-value possessions. So, uh, yeah, I'd love if you read my article just to kind of show how valuable rebounds are and how valuable offensive rebounding is. And it just points to how I, I really think Florida should um, should really embrace the fact that they've got some some good front-court pieces and and play big. Uh, dominate the defensive glass and don't give your opponent opportunities to get high value second possessions and uh, and just know like hey uh, maybe Omar Payne as a freshman isn't contributing a lot individually from an offensive standpoint um, but every offensive rebound he gets is, is uh, essentially a point for you so you know when, when factoring in the value they add to the floor uh, that's something you can look at so uh, yeah I'd love if you read my piece but offensive rebounding rebounding in general very important and Florida is going to be good at it this year so we're going to move on to the SEC media uh, day, um, what they call uh, SEC tip-off, I guess. And I kind of wanted to hone in on some things that Mike White said that I thought were really interesting. Um, and these came both in the media Q&A and then on the SEC network Q&A where, you know, I guess he kind of got baited into this question about, oh, you really want to get out and run like your teams did at Louisiana Tech where you played at this – incredibly fast tempo and and white was really respectful about it um because that's kind of how mike white is but he definitely pushed back on it a little bit right like he said well we want to be better in our transition offense but he said uh that doesn't necessarily mean that you know we're going to be out on the break so for our coaches corner uh, you know, I kind of wanted your thoughts on what Coach White said, Eric, um, and and I was happy to hear what he said. And then I, you know, I want I want you to maybe talk a little bit about transition offense because when people that you know don't coach or or that are just learning about basketball, which is a lot of the people that listen to Florida Basketball Hour, trying to learn more, they might confuse transition offense with a fast break offense, and that's not necessarily what that means. So, so first of all, just in terms of uh, Mike White kind of pushing back on, like, like you said, respectfully uh, saying that Florida is going to just like play fast for the sake of playing fast. I was so happy to hear that. Um, I, I, people who know who listen to this podcast just know like tempo is something that you and me have talked about um, a ton. I think the first podcast we ever did, we spent far too long talking about tempo that we should have. But um, uh, and something that I I just keep saying is. Uh, you look at college basketball history and 
teams that play really fast are just not effective in the NCAA tournament. They're usually not effective even in the regular season. Um, and if it were not for North Carolina, who does really well playing fast, and Gonzaga to an extent, um, I would say that playing fast has never worked um, in, in kind of at least, well, I shouldn't say never worked, in recent mo- modern basketball, college basketball history. So uh, so I, I really think Mike White is, has done his research and uh, has kind of recognized that uh, playing really fast for the sake of playing fast is is not a wise decision. So uh, shout out to Mike White for it. <laughs> I really think he did his research yeah, and, and realized yeah. uh, the good the good uh, the good pace to be playing on basketball. So uh, that isn't to say you should never run. Obviously, uh, playing in transition um, is still a very effective way uh, when it's there. Uh, uh, when you've got numbers, is is very smart way to play basketball. As uh, shots in transition are uh, are usually a little bit more efficient. And um, something that I think that he was kind of alluding to talking about being better in the transition offense is, uh, is something that you see a lot in the NBA. Uh, you see some teams in college basketball do this really well, um, especially North Carolina. Uh, Roy Williams does this better than anyone, uh, but is actually just kind of running early offense or uh, sometimes people use talk about it as the secondary break. If the first break was like, hey, let's see if we can get one pass to a layup or, or something like that. Um, but I think when, uh, when we think about how offense can be ran in basketball, we're, we're often thinking about, you know, half court offense where everyone's in their spots and now we kind of get, get moving into what we're doing. But, um, one example is, uh, the, you see just a ton in the NBA. If you throw on a random NBA game tonight, um, I would almost guarantee you see this, uh, something called a pistol action, which is something that's, um, a, a little bit difficult to, uh, uh, to describe over podcasts and it's it, not that I really need to uh, to get into it super well but uh, it's uh, you know imagining uh, pushing the ball up to the wing uh, off kind of a, a transition opportunity um, getting a ball screen off a dribble handoff really quickly so uh, quick pass to the wing dribble handoff for an immediate ball screen uh, doing things like that just early in the clock before defenses can get totally set because uh, if you slow things down and defenses get totally set, uh, you know, they're, they're communicating. They say, uh, they call checks. They say, who's got help? Who's in the gaps? Who's ready to stunt towards the ball? Uh, they're all set. If you get some of these early ball screens uh, kind of off the secondary break, you know, in that first like eight seconds of your offense, uh, oftentimes teams aren't totally organized at who's in help. And you can get an easy slip to the basket for a layup for your big man or, or something like that. So the way that I kind of heard uh, Mike White talking was was saying that Florida was going to look to do a little bit more of these kind of uh, early offense type sets yeah. uh, where they don't just go look for a layup if it's not there, pull it out and go into your half court offense where it's going to be like, oh, nothing's there. Um, quick pistol action. Let's get a dribble handoff into a ball screen. Um, let's do, a, you know, a, a, a f- something like that where you can do some kind of fake options off. And I, I think it's a uh, it's it's good to hear Mike White talking that way. I think it's a good way for uh, for this team to kind of utilize guys like Scotty Lewis, who maybe aren't going to be as effective when the game totally slows down. Uh, but uh, also, yeah, uh, just just really good to hear him say that he wasn't going to go back to the uh, the Louisiana Tech type offenses. Yeah, no, um, I would agree with that. And and you know, I think I, I, the the only thing I'd really add is I th- I do think in games where there's big talent differentials, you may see Florida go a little faster just because. It kind of logically follows that if you have more, yes, uh, if you have more possessions, usually talent wins out. It's something you see uh, Mark Few and Gonzaga do a lot, right? In the in the West Coast Conference, is that they'll they'll play a lot faster in conference play because 
they trust their talent to, to, to win out in those games. And usually their opponents are trying to slow them down and kind of uh, dictate tempo. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, personnel wise, of course, one reason Florida had to run a lot of sets last year. I mean, we, we probably did four or five podcasts where we answered listener questions, trying to explain that not necessarily as necessary this season, but I do think Florida can get some, some baskets out of those pistol actions. Um, my teams like to run horn sets where, uh, you know, just because we've been blessed with, with high school bigs, I guess like we, we actually have had <laughs> tall players, so you can get your four and a five out and, and um, have them uh, set screens at each side of the lane. So it kind of looks like the, the horns on a bull. That's why it's called that. Um, and, you know, I think that's, you, you can use it, to, to dribble handoff too, which I which is another thing that you see a lot in the NBA, where the one the point guard uh, will dribble handoff with one of the wings, and then you just set a simple pin down screen, right? Um, and if you have a really good passer off the dribble handoff, like a Keontae Johnson, uh, you can have some pretty good offense that way. Um, so you know, a lot of lot of different ways to generate early offense, and I do think that Eric's absolutely right. That that's what Mike White was talking about when he talked about you know playing a little quicker uh, in their transition offense. Yeah, I think uh, I, I you know thinking about how they could play in transition too, even just uh, some design drag screens for guys like Kerry Blackshear that are going to be trailing the play to get them open threes. I mean, that's something that um, Villanova did really well yeah. uh, a couple of years back. So. Uh, yeah, there is. A, I, I do think when people think about playing, playing fast, playing in transition, they often think about yeah, you get a you get a rebound and you you run and you run hard, and if you run harder than your opponent, you're going to get a layup. And there's something to be to be said for that in some scenarios. But you really can run early offense, like still be playing like these like full court sets, if that makes sense. So yep. uh, I think that that's that's something that uh, uh, is going to be a little bit more controlled than. Um, not to say that if the teams weren't controlled at Louisiana Tech, that would be uh, rude and incorrect. But but I do think that they were they were looking for just uh, the first shot available sometimes, or they were looking to jam the ball into the middle, and uh, and it, it resulted in some turnovers, but also a lot of layups for them. But uh, yeah, just something that uh, is a little more a little more full court set reliant, uh, or uh, as their transition attack, I, I think is wise, and I think that it's going to be something to be uh, uh, to be watched for it's something i'm really going to be looking for when that uh, when that first game against north florida tips so that's the uh that's our coach's corner segment for for this uh florida basketball hour uh podcast we're gonna try to do this segment pretty much weekly because gotten some good feedback on it and we're glad that you guys like it certainly uh eric and i like to dive into the basketball weeds a little bit. And we feel like maybe putting it in the middle is probably the best move anyway. Cause like if we just start doing this at the beginning, y'all going to be like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And and so that was one of the things that I kind of, that, that raised my eyebrows at, at media day. Um, not really anything else that Florida necessarily you know, that their staff said, although one thing that was really interesting to me from the player standpoint was all the praise of Andrew Nimhard for Quest Glover. That was very cool to see. And uh, it's it, obviously, I mean, when you join a class that has a couple five stars and a high four star in, in Omar Payne, I mean, uh, Quest Glover's probably not gotten the national attention that 
well, I shouldn't say that you'd expect, but uh, yeah. obviously just someone who kind of doesn't get talked about in the same conversation as the players that he's in a recruiting class with. Uh, but he's also someone that uh, has a really cool story in the way that he uh, got offered by Florida late and, and uh, the fact that he, despite a really good high school career, just never got the looks from, from power five teams and uh, has very quickly endeared himself to his teammates, to his coaching staff. And he's someone that um, you and I expect to play a role this year. Uh, as well as most fans now. So uh, to hear Andrew Nemhart kind of back him up, it's, it also, I mean, Andrew Nemhart's a smart player, so I think he kind of recognizes talent. Uh, it's also cool to see that, uh, uh, that he's got his teammates back and that he's, uh, uh, the, the fact that he was sure to make Quez Glover known and, and gave that praise, I thought, I thought was really cool. Yeah, no, I definitely thought it was pretty, uh, pretty neat. And, you know, for him to say, like, wow, this guy's really underrated. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I absolutely, Eric's right. It speaks to his leadership. I think it also speaks to, you know, I mean, these guys are all competitive and, and if they know that, you know, we, we know the story now that Andrew Nimhard and Noah Locke went into Mike White's office for their exit interviews and said, look, we just want to win. Um, what do we have to do to win? And to say that at media days and to single out Quest Glover tells me that they think he can impact winning. Something that I think that Andrew Demhart probably recognizes too is is the way that Quez Glover can shoot the ball. I mean, uh, <laughs> he he really is a good change change of pace kind of guy from Andrew Demhart. So uh, yeah. that's one thing that I think that I I mean I think Demhart and Quez Glover I think you could play him on the court at the same time actually with with some good effect. So uh, and, that, and that's something that I'm just so high on when it comes to Quez Glover, and it also just makes me that much more shocked that teams didn't see this in in Glover and and want to offer him, but. Uh, he can just really shoot off movement, and that's tough. And that's something that uh, I think if you're looking for a high school player to see how he'll project to college, uh, at least when it comes to shooting the basketball, I want to know if the player can shoot off movement or not, uh, whether he can shoot off the dribble, uh, whether he can sprint into a screen, catch a ball, calm himself, and, and rise up and, and hit the shot. Uh, Quiz Glover was doing that, and I think if you can do that, then, yeah, getting a, a – a swing from another teammate where his feet are set, you know, he's still going to be able to shoot the ball uh, super effectively. If you can shoot off movement, you can shoot it when you catch and shoot standing still. So uh, I'm just a really big believer in his ability to shoot the basketball. Um, I, I think defensively, uh, the way I've saw him kind of pressure the ball in some games I saw in, in high school, I think he'll be able to do that, especially at Florida where he's not going to be playing starters minutes. I think he can come off the bench uh, knowing that he's not playing a ton of minutes and just really, uh, really go all out and he'll be able to really hound some other teams uh, guards. And uh, so, yeah, very excited to see him play. It's, it's good to hear that he is uh, just another player down the bench on Florida that everyone seems to be really, really happy with. And uh, it speaks to the depth on the team. Uh, you know, uh, our, our good friend Malik Grady is going to be really happy that Florida has, you know, some good options at the backup point guard spot. Yeah. Uh, he's always pointed out how uh, unfortunate it's been the last couple of years. So, uh, yeah, Quez Glover. Add him to the list of guys. I'm really excited to see. Yeah, I mean the best bench. The best benches are versatile benches that that test defenses in different ways uh, than the starters do. And so, you know, I think Quez is a guy who who fits that role. And I love that. I love the idea of like if you can shoot off movement, you can shoot standing still because it reminds me of uh, dodgeball. If you can dodge a <laughs> ring, <laughs> you can you can dodge a ball. Um, SEC, speaking of dodging wrenches, I definitely have dodged some Twitter bullets this week for my uh, all-SEC team. I got Kentucky fans all in a huff over not including any 
uh, SEC, or over, not including any Kentucky players on my first team ballot. Um, so my first team all SEC ballot, just so, uh, you know, Eric can tell me all the ways I got it wrong, but I had, uh, I had Andrew Nimhard, Kerry uh, Blackshear, Brian Tyree. Let me see, make sure that I've got my, uh, my group right. Skylar Mays and, and Anthony Edwards. So I just have a bunch of guards and Kerry Blackshear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, rightfully so. I, I think that's a good list. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really see omitting Haggins as a problem. Um, I, I really think that, um, you know, some people are talking about Ashton Haggins is the best point guard in, in the SEC. Um, I think it's Andrew Nemhart. But I, I, I think if you really want to have a discussion about who's the best point guard is, it's between Andrew Nemhart and Kyra Lewis. <laughs> I don't even yeah. see Ashton Haggins in this in the top two. And I do like Ashton Haggins. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. um, I, I even think he contributes to winning with his uh, with his defense. I just don't think like if you're like a like if you're like an Atlantic 10 team right now and you're you could say, hey, um, you could have one of Andrew Nemhart or Ashton Haggins. Um, I, I think a team is taking Andrew Nemhart every single time. I, I, I just don't think that uh, I don't think the offense like the offense is just not really there. I don't think for Ashton Haggins right now. So, we'll, I mean, we'll see after the summer. We'll see what he does as a sophomore. But um, yeah, I just I just don't think he's the best. <laughs> I don't think he's the best point guard in the SEC. I, I don't think he's better than Andrew Nemhart. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I would have, uh, I would have omitted him from my first team as well on my list. So, so my, my list wouldn't have looked any different than you. Uh, I love Brian Tyree. He absolutely would have been there for me. And, and you always remind me how good Skylar Mays is. So I, I feel like sometimes I, I really forget, uh, forget about him, but then I, uh, you're always quick to remind me. So while I, at first I, I, I forgot about him, uh, kind of in my first team, thoughts uh, he definitely deserves to be there and I, I think LSU is going to be good as well so uh, and he could be their best player very easily to me so uh, yeah so I, I don't have any uh, any any quarrels with your list nice yeah I mean they're terrific one thing that's interesting was was the placement of Trent and Watford the uh, top 25 I think he's top 20 actually um, five-star freshman that that Will Wade uh, brought in and you know, I saw some strong ass list with with Watford on the second team, and I thought that was weird because, like to me, Emmett Williams and Trinity Watford are pretty similar players, and Williams is sophomore. Right. But people people love the new, you know, oh, oh five star freshman, so put him on the list, right? And like I didn't see that as much, but I did uh, include Emmett Williams as a guy who I think will make a significant jump as a sophomore. Um, put him on my All SEC second team. Uh, I did put a couple guys from Kentucky there. I did have Kyra Lewis on there. So that's where Florida basketball hours ballot was. And, you know, I wanted to get into uh, obviously Kentucky was picked to win the league by the media at large, Eric. Um, I, in, in what I'm sure everyone will sign as a Homer ballot, uh, picked Florida to win the league, but my top four were Florida, Kentucky, LSU also very high on them and Ole Miss a team that, that I just think has phenomenal guards um, and that we're both pretty high on. Yeah, definitely big on, on Ole Miss. There's no, uh, no problems with me putting the, from there, putting them that high. Uh, I just think when you, you look at the way that their backcourt really dominated last year um, with uh, Kermit Davis, with a new group of, of talent to him, uh, I think with another year of familiarity, um, some guys that obviously now Kermit Davis has brought in, uh, I expect them to be really good. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I would definitely have them up there. 
Um, the rest of my SEC list, I had Auburn fifth, Georgia sixth, Bama seventh, uh, Tennessee eighth, Miss State ninth, South Carolina ten, Space and Pace eleven, uh, Mizzou twelve, which was hard because I think Missouri is probably better than that. Like something about that Missouri team, I actually like quite a bit. Um, some things I said I should say uh, Texas A and M I have thirteenth and then Vanderbilt 14th. I do think that Jerry Stackhouse and that staff will win a conference game. Yes, I do think they will break the streak. I should actually look. At, we should look at their schedule and 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 uh, guess which game their SEC losing streak will end. That I I've looked at. I'll pull lot. it up. I'll pull it up. Um, something that I, uh, I I'm also higher on Missouri, uh, and I think that it was it's something I talked about a few times, not here but other places, and people are like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, something that was a little uh, vindicating was looking at Ken Palm coming out with the preseason rankings, which are, are not great. And, and Ken Pomeroy himself uh, admits this, but uh, but Missouri came in at 39th. So yeah, uh, those rankings clearly show that that Missouri is going to be a little bit better. Um, and I actually I actually don't mind South Carolina as well. I, I like the talent that's been kind of accumulated there, and and those are two teams that I could see ending up like sixth and eighth versus you know like. Yeah. 11th and 13th, but at the same time, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I would have had Missouri higher, though I, I totally understand. I mean, most people have Missouri 13th. I'd say that's kind of the, you look at pretty much everyone else's ballots, and the only locks were, you know, 13th was uh, was Missouri and 14th was Vanderbilt. Uh, so I'd, uh, I would have, you know, I, I'd have Missouri a little bit higher, and maybe that's a little hot takey, but uh, yeah, overall, no, no major, no major problems with your list. I think you did, did a really good job. Thank you. Thank you. And I didn't know, um, being me being me, you know, like I got to the email with the ballot in it and I was like, Oh, this is so cool. We got a ballot. And then I didn't ever look at the due date. So when I finally decided I would fill it out, it was like due the next day. And anyway, so next year we'll make sure that, that Eric Fawcett is, it's a COVID, but for whatever I, I just wanted everybody to know, like disclaimer, whatever I get wrong, it's not Eric also getting it wrong. Like <laughs> this year, all the bad takes are my bad takes. Um, so Vanderbilt's SEC schedule at Auburn is game one uh, at Texas A&M. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, at Arkansas, home against Tennessee, home against Alabama. Well, you know what game I'm picking. They're they're breaking it at Arkansas. Yeah, space and pace. That's, yeah, that's that's my uh, that's my vote. That's where I think that uh, Vanderbilt it, breaks their their losing streak. It, if anyone would know what that offense looks like all the time, it would be the staff that Stackhouse has put together. Hey, good point. So one one would think. So I don't know. Like their schedule, their conference schedule is really like they have A and M at home in their second game. Like that might be that might be a win. Like that's probably the the what what I should pick, but I but I'm gonna pick Arkansas. I'll, You're going because I, I, yeah. I actually I like, like when I was talking about Missouri and, uh, being a little bit better than I thought, and or the, sorry, than like kind of consensus as well as uh, South Carolina. I mean, uh, it's it's so funny nowadays. You like when people talk conference previews, they're always like, oh, I actually think this team's sneaky good, and I think, oh, I think this team's pretty good, and oh, I think this team's actually gonna surprise some people. Uh, it's very often that people say like, oh, like, like it's like everyone thinks that teams should be higher in the rankings without like pointing out what teams should be lower. Uh, <laughs> so I will say, I will say when I talk about some of these other bottom teams 
that I think are a little bit better. Uh, Texas A&M is a team I, I do not think is particularly good this year. And uh, I, I, I find some of their players quite frustrating. And I think that they will be uh, one of the basement teams that I think uh, could be battling for that 13th and maybe 14th spot. So uh, that that's probably the one I should pick for Vanderbilt to win at home. But yeah, I'll say Arkansas yeah. just to be different. Are you going to pick Texas A&M? Yeah, I'm going to pick a and I, I just think it's, I think you make great points. I don't like the roster that much. I actually think Buzz might blood the freshman quite a bit, too. Because, like, you talk about a coach with zero pressure on him. Uh, I yeah. mean, it's all going to be about installing his system and his culture. Um, yeah, so some of those guys are frustrating upperclassmen, I think. Right, that. right. I think Buzz will find a way to get something out of them, but I, I like what you're saying, too. Like, instill what you're going to do. And, uh, you know, Mike White has shown how quickly you can turn around a roster uh i think buzz williams could do something kind of similar so uh yeah good point about that um let's see so let's let me put you on the spot before we talk about uh, awards that that uh are are i say are my awards ballot um how many ncaa tournament teams Ooh. Uh, okay so <laughs> I, I would say, like, the one thing, too, I, I think to really do this, like, if I were to, like, really do this accurately, you'd really have to, like, go look at all the other power conference conferences, yeah. figure out what I think, and, like, to get a really good, um, really good pick. But, I, you know, I, I do think the SEC is, is down this year. Um, as soon as it kind of gets to those, you know, that seven or eight, I'm starting to feel a little bit not super stoked on some of those teams. So, I think I'm going to say six. Uh, six will be my number. Um, you know, like I said, that's a little bit, it's it's kind of hard to look at one conference in a vacuum, but I will say like by like the eye test, I guess essentially what this is, how many teams do I think uh, would I like kind of approximate if all the other conferences are roughly what I think they are? Um, I'll say six for the SEC. I, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally sure about some of those teams that are going to be, you know, from the, the seven, eight-ish range. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, I'll say six. What do you have to say? So I'm saying seven without knowing what the NCAA is going to do with LSU. Right. Um, okay. And so, so, but, but I actually, you know, again, I agree in the sense that like, and for me, it's really like, I think four teams are going to be fine. And those teams are Florida, Kentucky, Auburn and LSU. And so just cause I think Bruce Pearl will get the, like their non-conference will be fine. They'll figure out ways to win games. Um, it, even though I think their conference schedule is harder than Ole Miss's, so I went with Ole Miss um, to finish fourth. I do think Ole Miss is probably going to be fine too, which really leaves like what I think will end up being a four or five team bubble. And I just feel like two teams will make it through. I don't, you know, like for me, I still, I know it's a little hot ticky, but I still think Tennessee just has too, too many front court problems to be, an NCAA tournament team. I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Rick Barnes. I think it'd be a great coaching job, Rick Barnes, to get to the end of the big dance, honestly. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, six or seven for me. Yeah. Like off the, uh, like if you want to think about, like I don't know the exact number of how many power five or I should say, you know, major six conferences, um, how many bids they had. Um, but just like very roughly thinking, I mean, I look at like the American and I see that, you know, Memphis, I think South Florida, uh, I think Wichita state and I think like, you know, maybe Cincinnati. So like I look at the American and I'm like, Oh, there's, you know, they could be four bids from a non power six conference. And I look at like, 
uh, the Atlantic 10, and I think Davidson and, and you know, VCU, those are teams uh, that I think are going to be kind of in that mix. And I think Dayton's going to be really good this year yeah, with you know, Chase Johnson. So, so I see like three teams from the Atlantic 10 where I, like, you know, some of these, some of these, like, I don't want to say second tier conferences, that sounds very rude, but you know, like just those teams that are on like just past the power six, um, I see them as like, yeah, I really think the American could get like four bids or, you know, whatever, maybe more. I think the Atlantic Kent could have three bids in. Uh, and I think that those bids are, you know, obviously going to have to come away from the, the power conference teams. And I, I do think the SEC could be could be one of those leagues where the um, kind of some of these middle teams uh, don't make it. Yeah, I know. Look, I mean, I don't think Eric's six take is, is a hot one at all. And I always tell people, like, circle back on that number of bids prediction after December, right? And so give me the non-conference games to tell me where some of those bubble teams are. Because it's just – it's into, it's crazy how meaningful it is to win games in late November and December um, once, once you start really evaluating resumes. Well, and the other thing that really matters from an SEC standpoint that people aren't going to, like, really think about, but what, what would really affect – the league's kind of chances are if Vanderbilt beats some teams in non-conference, if Texas A&M beats some teams in non-conference, like, uh, like if the bottom of the SEC does pretty well and can kind of bump up the wins that the SEC would get in conference, uh, that really matters. So, uh, so the one major thing will be like, yeah, do some of these teams like Tennessee have good non-conferences, but it's also going to be like, Hey, can the bottom of the league get all their, their net rankings up so that when, uh, the teams at the top half of the SEC when they get wins that they can matter more. Uh, so yeah, that'll be a, that'll be something to watch. But uh, yeah, I'll stay. I'll, I'll say my my six for now. I like it. Uh, so preseason awards. I voted Kerry Blackshear Jr. as the preseason player of the year in the SEC, uh, which made me a pretty common ballot in, in that regard. My preseason coach of the year was Tom Crean. I might have been his only vote. Um, first place vote at least. Uh, I almost voted for Mike White and then didn't. Um, just because I think if Crean and Edwards have the type of season I think they're capable of, it really would be a good coaching job because I think the Claxton injury probably disrupted Crean's room a lot more than most coaches were disrupted. Um, and then, you know, I, Edwards was my newcomer of the year. The other guy that, that I, we should mention since like Edwards is the consensus newcomer of the year, I really think we should talk about you know, the fact that obviously Florida has two McDonald's All-Americans, but but Auburn has Isaac Okora, who I think is going to be sensational. Yeah, I think he's going to be, like, he could be the best defensive player in the SEC. Uh, I don't know if his counting stats will be enough for, like, some of the voters to to really give him the respect he deserves. Um, but also, you know, something like that could be pretty narrative-driven, so we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I think my Coach of the Year vote would go to, would go to Kermit Davis. Uh, just because I think that you know year two, and I, I think Ole Miss is going to be really good. Uh, that'll be that would be my kind of vote, but I have no problem with with Kareen, and obviously uh, they're a team that I think could could just go off with uh, with Anthony Edwards. Just uh, uh, or though I, I will actually point out, there's a oh I forget his name right now. I'm not trying to do this to him, but one of our listeners was uh, was messaging me about the uh, they had a scrimmage with with Charlotte. Um, last night, and it did not go particularly well for for Georgia, and they were struggling. Uh-huh. A lot for most of the game until they they ultimately won by you know like six or seven points, but they did not look very good against a meddling middle of the pack conference USA team. So, uh, for but I, I shouldn't read too much into that, I suppose. But um, uh, yeah, so 
uh, I do think that Georgia, you know, even though I just said that, I do think Georgia could be pretty good and Tom Crean would be uh, a, a good for, for some of these kind of like second year newer coaches. That's always a, a wise vote, I think. Uh, so, yeah, I'll go Kermit Davis, but no problem with uh, with Crean. And we'll uh, we'll close with with what we're going to we're going to now do a segment. We're going to find. In fact, listeners, um, th- this is how Eric and I will know if you're listening to the end. Um send us send us a name for this segment right now i'm just going to call it hot take of the week and this hot take of the week is going to go to cj moore who did a list at the athletic of the 20 best guards in america and put andrew nimhard at 17th um and you know i'm pulling the article up which is why you're here typing uh top 20 guards in in college basketball we kind of got into to Kyle Moon about his list last week of the top 10 point guards. But again, like he does top 25 guards. He had like McKinley, Wright, Who's like a six foot junior who didn't play a ton last year or, or had some injury issues last year, but whose numbers are just not better than Nimhard's ahead of, of Nimhard. Um, Miko Mannion, he had ahead of Nimhard, which, you know, we've kind of talked about that on the show. Uh, you know, I got to give CJ credit because he didn't rank um, Trey Jones in the top 10 even. But he had like Jordan Ford from St. Mary's ahead of Andrew Nimhart. And like, I'm just sorry. Like, <laughs> if Andrew Nimhart played at St. Mary's, like, you DVR WCC games to watch Andrew Nimhart. <laughs> like, anyway, your, your thoughts. Yeah. Once again, just pretty disrespectful. I just think like, like once again – Go to, go to, well, I mean, you wouldn't actually do this, but if you went to a bunch of um, random coaches in college basketball, different levels of play, and said, like, okay, so for your roster next year, you get to add Nico Mannion or Andrew Nemhart. Who do you take? I don't know too many who would take Nico Mannion. That's nothing against him as a player. He's a good looking prospect, good looking recruit. Um, but, you know, him versus what Andrew Nemhart accomplished and, and, and coming back uh, as a sophomore, I just don't think too many coaches would pick Nico Mannion over. Andrew Nemhart. So therefore, uh, why would you rank him? Why would you rank Banyan above above Nemhart? I feel that way about a few of those guys, uh, McKinley Wright as well. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's it's once again fairly disrespectful. I think the fact that this one was like you know general guards and not just point guards, I guess that makes uh, some tougher comparisons when there's you know some of the shooting yeah. guards, I guess some of those comboy guards. Uh, but still, looking at the point guards uh, ahead of Nemhart and list, I just think it's I just think it's foolish and rooted in i like i don't i just don't even know the logic that would be rooted in some of these decisions and in terms of uh both production um kind of style of play and and everything like that i just i I think Nemhart is just clearly better than a lot of a lot of those guys but uh hey we'll see and uh uh, maybe even uh maybe even some people can pull up these uh these lists uh halfway through the season or after the season when andrew Nemhart's played well yeah i mean maybe and maybe i'm wrong right like but but at the same time, you know, I just don't like he has, and I know he covers the Big Twelve a lot, so he sees him play live. Um, but then again, I see Andrew play live. But to rank Tyrese Halliburton eleven spots ahead of Nimhard, uh, I, I don't really get it. I mean, Halliburton, first of all, his jump shot looks like Jackie Moon from the Flint Tropics. Like I, <laughs> like I just it goes in, I guess, right? Uh, <laughs> it's just so strange looking. It's not even Sean Marion-esque. Like, it's uglier. Um, his offensive rating was really high, though. 
But like to isolate like his performance at a U nineteen World Cup is a reason you like him a lot, and then say that he's a he's a stats all star and a winner. It's like, okay, well, Andrew Nimhart played well at a World Cup, and do you, you know, <laughs> do you say he was a stats all star? Yeah, like it's like, like I'm pretty. I honestly think he averaged like six points a game last year. I'm looking yeah. it up. Like, um, I, I know he shot 43% from three-point range, but, like, uh, again, like, I just don't have – I don't know if that's sustainable with that jump shot. <laughs> Who knows? Well, yeah, yeah, he, he scored six – he was 6.8 uh, points last season. So, Hell, that's okay. uh, a real stats – a real stat sheet stuffer for sure. Yeah, a real, a real stat sheet stuffer. Anyway, so, you know, just some wild takes. Like, to have him one spot from Sam Merrill, like Tyrese Halliburton, it's just crazy to me. So, so that's our CJ. Congratulations. We'll keep standings, and you're the leader in the clubhouse now. Hot take of the week: one nothing um, to <laughs> to CJ Moore of the Athletic. So, to everyone who listened um, and who waited a few days, thanks to our technical issues, we we hope this show was as good as the last one. It feels like it was pretty good, um, but but uh, the good news is next week we'll have another. We'll have a scrimmage that we can see to talk about, and then it'll be game week. Yes, I am uh, very, very excited for it. So thank you for everyone who had to wait extra long for an episode. And yeah, sorry to those people who started listening to the last episode and realized it was super not working. I'm sorry for that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we thank you for We always thank you for listening. Yep.